everybody. Here we are. We're going to be going through chapter 3 tonight in 2 Peter. So we're coming down to the last chapter in this incredibly powerful letter that actually it really does burn. It's a powerful, and this chapter burns. This chapter is a really, really strong, really even profound chapter. So uh, let's look at Peter's purpose for his second letter. So far, we've looked at chapter 1, faith's convictions. Then in chapter 2, faith's contentions. And now in chapter 3, we're going to look at faith's consummation. Consummation of all things, the end of all things, we find in chapter 3. So here we go, verses 1 and 2. Beloved, I now write to you this second epistle, in both of which I stir up your pure minds by way of reminder that you may be mindful of the words which were spoken before by the holy prophets, and of the commandment of us, the apostles of the Lord and Savior. So again, here we go. Peter is the apostle of remembrance. He's always saying, let me remind you, let me remind you. He's one of the biggest believers in uh, learning, or repetition is the key to learning. Peter really believed this, because he's the, the apostle of remembrance. And he's reminding his readers of what the, the, the prophets and the apostles had already spoken to them. He turns their minds back to the Bible. Now remember, um, Second Peter, he, he's talking to people in the middle of a terrible reign of Nero. Nero was a horrible emperor. They're in times of persecution. The destruction of Jerusalem in 70 AD is right around the corner where the entire Old Testament system is going to be upended and done away with with the destruction of the temple. So these are very perilous times they're living in and that Peter is speaking to. So he's turning them back to the Old Testament. He wants them to remember what the prophets, Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, Daniel, minor prophets, Moses, David, even Abraham had already spoken. With cultists and skeptics prowling around, there was and is today no better protection from deception than to know your Bible, which we talked about last time. It's a sad fact, for instance, that cults are filled with people raised in orthodox, theologically sound churches. It's terrible. That's really, you'll, you'll note that often, like for instance, the Mormons target uh, church-going Christians. Either they chose to not pay attention to what they were taught, or even worse, and I know this is true, they weren't taught at all. Somebody in the pulpit, or a lot of pulpits, didn't get up and teach the Word of God. They brought pep rally kind of messages, motivational messages, but they didn't get up and really teach or preach the Word. And the fact is that biblically literate Christians are never likely to be trapped in the snare of false teachers. The more you know your Bible, the more protected you are from the false messages swirling around everywhere, social media everywhere in our day. Uh, now, let's, let's talk about the Mormons. Let me just give you an example of how just knowing the Bible will protect you from a cult like the Mormons. Thousands of Christians raised in Orthodox churches are snared by this cult every year. You know, they probably come knocking on your door. They've come knocking on my door. But if you knew your Bible, you would never fall for their false doctrine because they're loaded with false doctrine. Their whole message is false. Give me an example. 
Mormonism's beginning, just the beginning, should sound an alarm for anybody that knows their Bible. Mormonism's founder, you probably know, Joseph Smith, claimed this, that in September 1827, an angel named Moroni led him to the hill Qumrah near Palmyra to unearth golden plates inscribed with a divine message that according to Joseph Smith had been lost to humankind since they were buried there way back in the 4th century A.D. You know, already I've got alarm bells going off. So stop right here. If you knew your Bible, you would immediately remember Paul's warning found in Galatians 1.8. Quote, that even if we or an angel from heaven should preach a gospel other than the one we preach to you, let them be under God's curse. Now, what did Paul say? Even if an angel gives you another gospel, even if it's a convincing angel, let him be a curse. So this so-called angel Moroni, Joseph Smith uh, claimed, visited him, was no angel from God. And that right there should stop anybody that knows their Bible from becoming a Mormon. But Smith went on to claim, with the aid of special seeing stones, I'm not kidding, this is really, this is the history of Mormonism, with the aid of special seeing stones, he translated the message found on these plates, golden plates, which he claimed were written in Reformed Egyptian, uh huh, and published it as the Book of Mormon in 1830. And this book has become the foundational document for Mormons. They got their Bible and they got the Book of Mormon. That's what you find in, uh, what is that hotel chain? There's a hotel chain. They show they've got the Book of Mormon in every one of the drawers right next to a Bible. All right? So stop there. If you knew the Bible, you'd immediately remember the warning found at the close of the book of Revelation. And I solemnly, here's what John wrote, I solemnly declare, declare to everyone who hears the words of prophecy written in this book, if anyone adds anything to what is written here, if anyone adds anything to what is written here, God will add to that person the plagues described in this book. So Mormon theologians, along with numerous statements from their own scriptures, Teach polytheism, the view that there are multiple gods, as well as the fact that God has a body. So not only did the Book of Mormon claim that an angel gave them another gospel, and not only do they claim that uh, um, they were given the Book of Mormon supernaturally, and they added to the book, but now you've got Mormon theologians teaching polytheism. There's multiple gods. And that God has a body. The Doctrine and the Covenants, that's what a, a Book of Mormon, the Doctrines and Covenants, states that the Father has a body of flesh and bones as tangible as man's. The Son also. Catch that. This part of the Book of Mormon, or this one of the books in the Mormon religion, called the Doctrine and Covenants, states the Father has a body, God has a body of flesh and bones. But stop there. Jesus said, God is spirit. And those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth. 
So Smith's claim of God having a body is totally heretical. And if you knew your Bible, you'd never follow for that. You'd never swallow it. But look at all the Christians who are not grounded in Scripture that do swallow it and become Mormons. What a shame. Let me give you one more example. Mormons teach that salvation is made possible by Christ's suffering. Okay, so far so good. But Mormon salvation, known as exaltation, goes beyond this and takes place when an individual becomes a god. So once individuals are exalted, they can, along with their families, partake of all that God is in the afterlife. Exaltation is possible only through strict obedience to Mormon teachings and practices. Now right there, stop. Because what does our Bible teach? It is by grace you have been saved through faith. This not from yourselves, it's the gift of God. We are saved by grace through faith, not by adhering to Mormon doctrine, which is salvation by works. They teach salvation by works, and nowhere does the Bible say we are gods. You know, there's a little teaching going around in some circles that we are little gods. No, we're not. We're sinners saved by grace. We're not little gods. The Mormons teach that you're going to become a god. You're not. So, as you can see, the falsehoods taught by Mormons are easily caught by someone who knows their Bible. But if you don't know it, you're fair game and you're going to get ensnared. And it's the same with all false teaching. If you know your Bible, you will not get ensnared. So again, over and over again, we teach here at Turning Point, know your Bible, know it well, read it every day, know it better than you know any book in the world, because it'll save you, protect you, guard you, keep you from false teaching. Now, in Peter's day, false teachers had already been spreading the message that Christ was going to return. So this was spreading in Peter's day. Now, this shook the faith of some Christians. So Peter urges his readers regarding the false teacher's claims, go back to the scriptures. See what it says about the return of Christ. Go back to your Bible. Check it out, and it will settle you. Now, next he turns his attention to end-time scoffers that will appear prior to the return of Christ. He says in verse 3, knowing this first, scoffers are going to come in the last days, walking according to their own lusts. Now notice, he isolates last days. When are they going to come? When are they going to proliferate? Scoffers are going to proliferate in the last days. What will characterize them? They're going to be chasing their own lusts. Now first, he, he exposes their ridicule. The word scoffers can also be translated mockers, okay? These mockers will ridicule and make fun of what? The return of Christ. They're going to mock the very idea of the return of Christ in the last days. So as as the return of Christ approaches, you're going to have a big segment of, of the culture of the world is going to begin to openly make fun of the very notion that Jesus Christ is going to come back again, appear in the clouds, take his church away, and then come back to judge the world. They're going to mock it. Peter says they have rotten lifestyles. They walk according to their lusts. They're lust-driven. These people are going to be fleshly, carnal, living according to the lust of the flesh. That's why they will mock the return of Christ. They don't want anything to do with Christ. 
The Bible warns that those who are in the flesh cannot please God. They don't know the Lord. And as Peter said earlier, they speak evil of the things they don't understand. I've seen so-called comedians and comedians, male and female uh, so-called funny people on uh, television and movies and whatnot, literally openly mock the very idea of the return of Christ. I've seen it recently. So we've got this going on now, and it's growing. Oh, you, you crazy, silly church. You don't really believe some guy that died 2,000 years ago is going to appear again in the clouds and take you away. What a pipe dream. What a fantasy. What a myth. You know, that's nuts. But in fact, he is coming back. And the same way that Noah's generation mocked the ark, saving them, anybody that put their trust in the ark and got on the ark, they mocked Noah and mocked the ark. They're going to mock the return of Christ. Same way. Then Peter says their reasoning is faulty. Not only are they full of ridicule, but they are full of bad reasoning. And they're going to say, where's the promise of his coming? For since the fathers fell asleep, all things continue as they were from the beginning of creation. So they reason wrongly based on their judgment of history. They look back at Jewish history and they say, come on, uh, everything is going just like it was in the days of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and all through the times of the Jews up till now, uh, things have gone on just the same. There's no difference. Uh, But there is. There will be no return of Christ, they're going to say. Come on, it's the same old, same old. Life is going on now like it always has. Modern day scoffers, like these, are everywhere. We've got what's called the New Atheists. Uh, it's, a, it's a movement headed up by a, uh, I, think, I think he's an Oxford professor named Richard Dawkins. We've got Sam Harris, Christopher Hitchens, which has gone on into eternity now. Uh, routinely mock the claims of Scripture, routinely, to large coliseums of people. They write books. They go on speaking tours. They debate. Um, dedicated Christians deriding their beliefs, mocking their belief in Christ and the resurrection and the atonement and the return of Christ. The teaching of evolution mocks the claim of Scripture, uh, while evolutionists laugh at the very belief in a returning Jesus Christ. After all, they say, God didn't create the world, Jesus didn't create the world, evolution did. And and Peter answers their faulty reasoning by turning back to the Genesis account of creation. Very important here, verse 5. For this they, how do they forget? They willfully forget. What do they forget willfully? That by the word of God, the heavens were of old. In other words, God made the heavens. They don't just forget, but they intentionally put out of their mind that God made everything, okay? And the earth standing out of water and in the water. In other words, God made the earth. He made the water. He separated the land from the water. Notice that Peter says the scoffers willfully put these things out of their mind. And and then now he's going to address how they deny the universal flood of Noah. He says, 
And God said, let the waters under the heaven be gathered together in one place, and the dry land appear. Now, this is Genesis. God called the dry land earth, and the gathering together of waters he called seas, and God saw that it was good. So, there he's talking about creation. But now, in verse 6, he's going to talk about the actual universal flood. So, so first he establishes God made everything, and he separated land from water. And he said, these mockers in the last days are going to deny that God did that, that God made everything and separated the land from the water. Peter says in verse 6, by which the world that then existed in Noah's day perished, being flooded with water. What's he talking about? He's talking about Noah's flood. He says, the world was flooded totally, the entire world. This was not a partial flood. It was not a, 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 a one territory flood. It covered the entire globe. The entire globe was flooded. And Peter is affirming that in verse 6. So Peter returns to the story of Noah and the flood again and again in his writings. His point is that the world was well warned of what was coming. That's his point. For 120 years, at God's command, Noah built the ark, informing him that 120 years were going to elapse before judgment fell. So we know that Noah preached for 120 years to his generation. Um, Peter calls him a preacher of righteousness. So he preached for 120 years. Nobody repented. But here's Peter's point. As God judged the whole world then, he's going to do it again. The one thing Jesus himself pointed out about the people of Noah's time was they had self-imposed ignorance. They were marrying, giving in marriage, buying and selling, doing business deals. All the while, Noah was building this strange ark, preaching to them that a flood was coming. Yet they kept right on cutting business deals, buying and selling, marrying and giving in marriage, having feasts, you know, drinking, whining and dining, enjoying life without God, totally ignoring the warnings of the man of God. Peter is saying, this is a direct parallel what it's going to be like before the return of Christ. They willingly suppressed the truth. The ark was a sign from God to them. The preaching of Noah was a sign from God to them. Yet they willingly, consciously, conscientiously, on purpose decided to ignore it. And this, says Peter, is a portrait of end-time scoffers. They're willfully ignorant. They've shut out God's voice of warning, and they'll continue to do it, though they're surrounded with signs far greater than those of Noah's day had. Um, We've got the gospel. We've got the church. We've got the Bible. We've got the convicting Holy Spirit. We've got the signs that Jesus gave that would foreshadow his return. We've got so many things those of Noah's day didn't have. Yet still, God judged that generation. And so they're going to continue to scoff, continue. Now some will be saved, but he's talking about the the overall mindset of the world that will be there at the return of Christ. They'll hide behind willful ignorance. And Peter's got another warning for them, verse 7. 
but the heavens and the earth, which are now preserved by the same word. The heavens and the earth, please catch this. This is profound stuff. The heavens and the earth that are now preserved by the same word that preserved the earth for those 120 years while Noah preached. The same heavens and the same earth are being reserved for fire until the day of judgment and the perdition of ungodly men. Now, you remember the sign of the rainbow? What was the sign of the rainbow? God put the rainbow in the sky. Uh, It was not to stand for a homosexual movement, but the, the rainbow was given as a covenant from God to man that he would never destroy the earth again with a flood. But he didn't say, I'll never destroy it again. He just said, not with a flood. But here we're about to be told that God is going to destroy it with fire. And it's being reserved by the word of God for that day. The very same word that kept the vast oceans and their given boundaries until the time of the flood now holds back the fire of God's judgment in check. Peter tells us the entire universe is being reserved for a day of fiery judgment. Boy, that's just so profound. The phrase reserved for fire means to be treasured up. That is, they're being held for the day of God's choosing. Treasured up. God alone knows the day, the hour, the minute that he will burn the world up and start over again with a new heaven and a new earth. The universe and everything in it is being held for the day of God's choosing when he will finally judge the world for its sin. And believe me, he's going to. And when I hear of the fears of uh, the people having of a nuclear holocaust, I can't say that I share those fears with them. I, you know, I, I know it would be a terrible thing, and I think it's very, very probable that we will see a limited nuclear exchange. Man has never created a weapon he didn't use. But it won't be the end of the world. Because the Bible tells us what will end the world. Uh, it'll end with God himself releasing a universal flame. Now don't forget that John informs us of God's plan to create a brand new heaven and a brand new earth. Revelations 21, 1 to 8, you can read about it. He will clean up all the filth and all the residue left by sin. This dirty filthy, sin-infected, devil-infested world is going to be burned up and totally made over. And he's reserved the timing of it to himself. The day of judgment will be ushered in by the disillusion of the entire universe. I want you to catch that. This is powerful. It's already on God's calendar, Revelations 20.11. That awesome day will coincide with the great white throne judgment before which all the ungodly of all time will face their maker at the great white throne judgment. So Peter next reminds us of this timetable of God's. And he says, God's timetable is not yours. Look at verse 8. But beloved, don't forget this one thing. That with the Lord, one day is as a thousand years, and a thousand years is as one day. So to us, a thousand years seems like an eternity But not to God. He experiences it like it was just one day. Because he doesn't dwell in time. It's hard for us who are bound to time uh, to wrap our mind around a God who doesn't dwell in time. Uh, No, he's, 
He's in an eternal present tense. He looks at the past, the present, and the future all at the same time. He sees tomorrow as easily, easily as he sees today. He's already there in our tomorrow. And he's here right now in our today. God doesn't dwell in time. He's not bound to time. So to him, he's like Jesus said, I am that I am. Whatever time you're talking about, he am. If you're talking about 2,000 years ago, he am. If you're talking about right now, he am. If you're talking about 5 trillion years from now, he am. He is. He's the He's ever-present tense. So, in God's way of reckoning, we could easily say that our Lord Jesus has been gone two days, 2,000 years. Peter reminds us of this to counter our impatience. Because how many times do we say, even so, come Lord Jesus, where are you, Lord? Why are you taking so long? And I, I get it. I do too. And so, James warns us the same way. He says, therefore, be patient, brethren, to the coming of the Lord. See how the farmer waits for the precious fruit of the earth, waiting patiently for it until it receives the early and the latter rain. You also be patient. Why? Because the precious fruit of the earth to God is the harvest of souls. And that's what God is waiting for. In verse 9, Peter assures us that God will keep his promise, and he's got a very compelling reason for his infinite patience. What is it? Verse 9. The Lord is not slack concerning his promise. As some people count slackness. He's long-suffering towards us. Not willing. Here it is. Not willing that any should perish. But that all should come to repentance. How many? All. So you can't read that and say. God's chosen some to be saved. And he has chosen some to be lost. When it tells us right here. It's not his will that any would perish, but that all would repent. If that's not something we could choose to do, this verse wouldn't say that. But God wants to wait until that last person repents. And God alone knows. There will come a day, there will come an hour, there will come a minute. When the last person from the great, 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 multi-billion harvest of the cross of Christ, the last one, says, Father, forgive me, and Jesus washes them clean. There will be that last one. And when that happens, God will know, and he'll wrap everything up then. The word slack, he's not slack, it means to delay. He's not delaying unnecessarily. Uh, And he's not tardy, he's not late. He might be late according to our timetable, not, but not his. He remembers his promise. Uh, but what unbelieving men call tardiness, God calls patience. He's not late. Never has been. Never will be. No, instead, he's long-suffering. And his long-suffering is a marvel. Think about it. God sits silent while the vilest blasphemies are uttered by godless reprobates. He silently waits while the most loathsome perversions are practiced and flaunted among the children of men. He's silent while his son's name is dragged through the mud and little children are aborted by the millions 
from the place where they should be the most safe, their mother's womb. God's patience is a marvel. Stop and think of how patient he was with you and me. Aren't you glad he was patient? Amen? You glad he was patient? Because he was patient, very patient with me. Oh, so many times he's been patient with me. So many times I would not have been patient with me, but he was. What about you? Amen? If he had not been patient, would we be here tonight? Would you? Would would I? No. Without the patience of God? No. Uh, David said, your gentleness, Lord, has made me great. The gentleness, the patience, the long-suffering, the compassion of God makes me, gives me growth room. Amen? Consider the fact that God's patient endurance of endless outrages must surely mean he sees ahead for many a future of inconceivable horror if they don't repent. So out of pity and out of compassion he waits, not willing that any should perish, but that all would come to the knowledge of the truth. Amen. What powerful words these are. Could these be, this is why I called this series The Letters That Burn, uh, because that chapter cooks and burns. And we're going to finish the last part of chapter 3 and Second Peter. We're going to wrap it up next time. But let's pray together that God will help Turning Point, all of us together as a church family, to reach as many as we can, as fast as we can, in as many ways as we can, because truly, surely, He is at the door. Father, these are sobering, somber words that we read. And we pray in Jesus' name, help us to keep our eye on the ball on the Great Commission, on your purpose for us, your call on us. To not only raise up the saints, but to cast that net, that gospel net, far and wide. That many, 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 many would come to a saving knowledge of Jesus Christ before you come back. In Jesus' name, amen.